Hey, it's Melissa here, the host of the Filled with Gold Widow podcast. I've had an amazing time doing this podcast, and I'm so grateful for all of you who have listened and supported me along the way. As you might know, I've been working on a new podcast with my two widow besties, Kim Murray and Jen Zwink, called the Widow Squad Podcast. And I've made the decision to focus all my energy on it. The Widow Squad Podcast is a show that provides a space where widows can come together share stories, and find comfort in knowing they're not alone. It's a show we're really passionate about and hope that you'll give it a listen. If you've enjoyed Filled with Gold, I know you'll love the Widow Squad podcast. It's the same kind of honest, heartfelt, and sometimes funny conversations that you've come to expect from me. But it's also a show that will give you a deeper understanding of what it means to be a widow. So if you're ready for a new podcast, I hope you'll check out the Widow Squad podcast. You can find it on your favorite podcast platform. And if you're not ready to say goodbye to the Filled with Gold Widow podcast, you can always go back and listen to all the old episodes. Whether you're a recent widow or have been on this journey for a while, we're here to support and empower each other. So come join us. Thanks again for listening, and I'll see you on the Widow Squad podcast. You're listening to the Filled with Gold Widow podcast the show that puts you in touch with expert resources to support you in moving forward after the death of your spouse and life partner. I'm your host, Melissa Pierce. Let's dig in. Barbara Kenyon is a dating coach for widows, and finding true love again after being widowed can be really scary business. Barbara Kenyon knows a thing or two about that. After being married for nine years to the love of her life and four months after the birth of their first child, Barbara's husband died from pancreatic cancer. That was a very dark time in her life. Five years after being widowed, Barbara married the new love of her life. And for the last 25 plus years, she has been joyfully helping widows gain great clarity about what they really, really, really want for their life. Learn how to love themselves first and discover how to find a new relationship where they will feel understood, valued, special, safe, and loved. Welcome to the show, Barbara. I'm, I'm really glad that you're here. Thank you, Melissa. Thanks so much for inviting me. So, um, well, tell us a little bit about your story, if you wouldn't mind. Okay, be glad to. I'll elaborate a little bit more on that introduction you just gave. Um, I was, in fact, with my late husband for nine years. And uh, when our son was born, he was only two months old, and my husband was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer. That was a shock to all of us. Uh, he was a healthy, vibrant man. And really the only symptom he had was a little ache on his left side that his doctors dismissed until finally he started losing some weight and we thought there must be something more to this. And that's when we received this horrific diagnosis of pancreatic cancer. They told him that we had already metastasized the liver and he better get his affairs in order and there was really nothing they could do for him. Eight weeks later, he died. So um, I became a widow. I joined the club. Nobody wants to be able to join, right? Right. And um, I, I remember when the doctor gave us that diagnosis, which was just such a shock to all of us. I said to the doctor, but our baby is just two months old. I, I was so crazed by this. And I wanted the doctor to say, okay, well, I'll give that diagnosis to someone else. I didn't realize you were a new parent. Uh, but anyway, it doesn't work that way. And uh, eight weeks later, as I said, my husband died. I was ill-prepared to deal with widowhood. It was uh, something I knew nothing about. I didn't have a peer group. I was in my 30s. 
um, of people who had been widowed. And uh, as I mentioned, it was, it was a very dark time in my life. I think that the saving grace for me was I received a phone call about a month or two after Dick died. And it was a lady who said she was a volunteer with Widowed Persons Service, WPS. That was an organization that was very big in the United States and internationally as well in the 70s. She said that, I said, well, how did you get my name? And she said, well, we clipped it out of the obituaries in the newspaper. So that was a whole different time in our lives, right? Right, before Google. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. So, And she said she was uh, a young widowed woman herself and had small children, and she was just reaching out to offer me support. That woman became my lifeline. She normalized, if you can do that, widowhood, and, and uh, told me that there's a whole organization, people right in Lincoln, Nebraska, where I was living, of widows, younger widows as well. And, uh, and it was the support from Widow Person Service that enabled me to literally move forward. Is that, is that service still around? I've never heard of it. It is not around any longer. It sort of, over the decades, uh, fell apart. I think the government took it over. I think it may have been under AARP at some point. But it does not exist today, except I did Google it. And I think there's still a local chapter in um, Minnesota. But otherwise, it does not. But the whole idea of it was, again, to provide the support from poor newly widowed. In order to become a volunteer, you needed to be widowed a minimum of 18 months and feel that you had made a satisfactory adjustment to widowhood. And, and the criteria that they used, interestingly enough, to determine whether you've made that adjustment is when you can think about your late husband, remember the things about him that you love. And remember the things about him that drove you nuts <laughs> and be able to still put a little smile on your face. I couldn't imagine being at that place when I was newly widowed. But it's the old joke about we who are widowed, we put our husband on a pedestal every year and a little higher and a little higher. And then finally, you know, many years down the road, that guy who died is like not even remotely close to the real guy who died. Right. The sainthood. <laughs> exactly. Right. That my mother, my mother is was a person who uh, didn't have much of a filter when she spoke. So um, that was my role model. And I remember one time I was talking to her about my husband, my late husband, and I'm again, gloating about what a perfect man he was. And she turned to me and she said, you know, Barbara, he wasn't exactly perfect. And I thought, oh my gosh, it was like a stab through my heart. But she was right. And that did really help me to ultimately get a better perspective on that. Yeah. And um I don't know. I find it interesting. So at what point did you went after that person reached out to you from widowed person service? Um, were you like, well, I, I'm assuming you volunteered then at that I point. Did. I did. I, not initially I worked with her. I mean, she continued to call me weekly, twice, you know, twice a month, whatever. And, uh, and again, normalized widowhood to some degree. And then after about 18 months or so, she said to me, you know, I think you would make a fabulous volunteer for widowed person service. That wasn't really on my radar. I was busy doing raising my child and trying to move forward with my life. And I, I just wasn't thinking in those terms. But then I thought, I don't know, maybe I can do this. Maybe I can do this. So I went to one of her meetings and, and I met all these wonderful widowed women and, and men, actually. They were both in this organization. And... Um, and I said, yeah, actually, I will. And I did. I began, became a volunteer. And I ultimately was promoted to the volunteer coordinator. 
And I did that for many, many years. They had conventions, international conventions. I went to several of those in the United States, but there were people from around the globe that attended it. And it totally took on a life of its own for me. Um, I, I felt like this, you know, it's talking, it's about turning tragedy into opportunity. And I felt like I had um, a certain skill set that seemed to be valuable. In fact, in my office right here, I have a big plaque that they gave me after I'd been the volunteer coordinator for lots of years. And that's really special to me. Wow. So, so if, that not was, for, if not for that person reaching out to you, you wouldn't have really known about this I would not have. I would not have. I don't know. Maybe I might have stumbled along it across the way, or along the way. I, I have a background in counseling and I was always big on support groups. I just fortunately never had to join any of my own. But actually, when I was early in my volunteering stages, it was apparent that there are a lot of younger widows and widowers that, that didn't have their own little support group. So they asked me if I would start a social group for younger widows and widowers called Just Pals. And, uh, and I thought, well, that sounds like fun. And I was always a pretty good organizer. I liked organizing things. So I, I did. And I remember our first event was at a bowling alley and I didn't know who was gonna show up or who these people were, but um, a bunch did. And, uh, and we became a really nice group of friends ultimately. And the other thing about widow person service that helped me was, you know, that old expression, I cried because I had no shoes until I met who had met him. Hold on back up. I cried because I had no shoes until I met a man who had no feet. Mm-hmm. And I, I was paired with about four other widowed women. And each story was more sad than mine in that one of the women uh, was pregnant when her husband was killed in a car accident. And another one had several children. She was my age and huge financial difficulties. And another one, I think there was a suicide involved and that was a whole other kind of situation. And, uh, and all wonderful, wonderful, beautiful souls, women. So it all of a sudden, you know, there's nothing like the support of somebody else when you are in a difficult situation. Right. Yeah. It's a, a beautiful way to support each other and, and also get some perspective on your own, on your own experience as well. Yes. Uh, with mm-hmm. the um, widow, with the Just Pals group, there were a bunch of people who were thinking about dating again. And when you say the word dating, usually the word freaked out is companies that dating is never comfortable initially. And with so many widows and widowers, um, especially the longer they've been married, the more removed they are from the whole dating scene. And, um, and, I, and I saw uh, a real need there. I was actually a self-proclaimed dating coach in my college days, <clears throat> long before I was a widow. And the, way, the reason I say that is because I used to sense how dating was just so awkward among people. And um, again, my mother had no filter. She would just jump into anything. And I did inherit a lot of that in my DNA. And so I used to like to fix people up with friends. I, I could just sense scary, scary, scary business. So that evolved into when I was ultimately widowed. And then when I decided that I would like to find true love again down the road, I, it, it wasn't as scary for me because I had this long history of helping people do that. I'm wondering if the, any of the just pals became more than just pals. Uh, you know, there were definitely friendships developed. Um, I, yes, 
Yeah. I, you know, it's been so long ago, Melissa, that I've sort of forgotten about those details. But yes, there was definitely one couple that did get married. And then we ended up deciding, well, should they be in our group anymore? Because they're no longer single. Right. But we decided, what the heck? What the heck? We like them. We'll keep them yeah. in. We'll keep them in here. Well, let's go into the, the your your dating coaching. At what point were you like, oh, I think I can think I can do this or I, um, or did, did dating come first for you and then dating coaching or how did that work? Well, it was sort of working with widows, of course, happened after I was widowed, but mm-hmm. I, I, in the self-proclaimed, um, uh, dating coach from college days was just part of my, um, bio that I gave myself. I didn't have any credentials to support it. Right. Just your personality, you know, exactly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So um, when I, after I had been widowed myself for a couple of years, I decided that I really, I didn't sign up to become a mom as a single mom. I wanted to do that with my husband and I didn't think I was the greatest single mom. I was, um, I guess the most obvious reason to me was that I was always afraid that my son would get hurt on the playground, a little bit neurotic in that way. And I knew that if I had a stereotypical husband who was a little tougher than I was, I was raised in a family with all girls. So we didn't, I didn't have that exposure to rough and tumble boys. And then I had a son who was every bit that. And I remember thinking if there was a dad or a, you know, a male figure in my son's life, he probably would be a little more courageous and a little less like I was. So anyway, after a few years of being a single mom, I decided that I wanted to um, meet somebody wonderful again. Uh, nobody was showing up at my door, except that UPS guy who was not my type. (laughs) And I I probably was certainly not his. And um, so I decided that I would start networking. Internet dating at that time was not an option. This was, we're talking about in the um, late eighties. And uh, so I decided to network with every friend I'd ever met in my whole life because I wasn't a drinker. I didn't want to hang out in a bar. And I thought the best way to meet somebody wonderful is through a recommendation of one of your wonderful friends. So I did. I contacted everybody I ever met, really. And I was almost obnoxious about it. I want to meet somebody wonderful. Who do you know? And most of my friends said things like, oh, we don't know anybody or who we would know. They're creeps. You wouldn't be interested in them. And I finally said, well, let me decide. You know, you're not, I'm not marrying them. I'm just meeting them. And so let me decide. So friends did lighten up a little bit. But ultimately, um, I did meet my husband five years later through a friend. And I saw that my system worked. And that's when I decided, um, when Alan, well, actually, let me back up a bit. I married Alan, who was employed by the Dale Carnegie program. So he was all about helping people win friends and influence people, you know, and he was about helping people build self-confidence and all the stuff that Dale Carnegie program is about. Not to put in a plug for Dale Carnegie, but it's a great program. Yeah, and yeah. Um, and that was when Kenyan Coaching development. When we got married, we merged our forces. Alan wanted to leave Carnegie and open up his own kind of training program and coaching. And I had a background in that myself, career-wise. So we developed that. And that was when I decided I want to help widows and singles actually find true love again, as I did. So you mentioned systems. I think you said the word systems that you use to kind of prepare yourself to get into the dating world. Is that correct? Uh, yes. You know, I love the word systems because mm-hmm. you know what that stands for? No. That's it, an, an, what do they call it? An acronym? Yeah. Yes, an acronym. Thank you. Mm-hmm. It stands for save yourself time, energy, money, stress. 
Okay, that's going in the show notes. (laughs) Go right ahead. I love that. I don't even know where I found that, but I've been using it for years. Save yourself time, energy, money, stress. We all want to save ourselves, all of that. So it's all about creating a system that works. So what was your question about? Well, what kind of um, dawned on you that, yes, I want to father figure I want a partner in in my life and so you you know had this this your your friends and but but to prepare yourself to get ready to like welcome somebody into your life was there were there certain things that you did or mentally or you had to kind of work through or prepare yourself for to get into the dating world yes Melissa it's a really good question and I think that there are important steps that one needs to take in fact I created a, a whole seven step process a little ebook called After Widowhood, The Secret to Finding True Love Again. And maybe I, this would be a good place for me to just address those seven steps because I yeah. follow them myself. Let's do that. Okay. Number one is to gain great clarity on what you really want for your life. Not what you want for a life partner, but what you really want for your life. A lot of times when you have been widowed, I mean, all the time when you've been widowed, your whole world is flipped upside down. And you know that from your own experience, right? Yes, yes. And, um, and, uh, there, and there are sometimes silver linings around the death of one spouse. It's not like we would like him to be dead so that we can gain the silver linings. But the reality is there are certain silver linings. And those may be things like uh, newfound freedom, being in charge, being in the driver's seat for the first time, being able to paint your walls a color that your husband couldn't stand, um, being able to, uh, well, really change a career, change everything in your world, because all of a sudden you don't need a part, you don't have a partner as a permission giver. And, uh, and that there's a certain amount of freedom that comes along with that. When I was the training coordinator for widowed person service, I used to train all the volunteers how to work with the newly widowed. And it was a process that went over a number of weeks. It was, a, it was actually put out by Widow Person Service. They had this whole manual. I wish I had saved that because there was some really good stuff in there. But anyway, and one of the things I would tell the widows is that you have to be able to, like I said previously, think about your husband and the good, the bad, the ugly, all of it, and be able to find a certain sense of peace with that. And I remember saying to one of the widows, well, to the whole group, I said, there is a certain silver lining that you will discover. Doesn't mean you would sign up for it over having your husband you know, be alive, but nonetheless, it is what it is. And the one lady, I remember her name was Eileen. She said, oh, there's no silver lining for me. Trust me, no silver lining. And I said, well, you know, give it time. So uh, a few years later, I was in the grocery store. And all of a sudden, there was this lady whizzing past me with her shopping cart really, really fast. I took a look to see who that was. And it was Eileen. I hadn't seen her in a few years. I said, Eileen, it's Barbara Kenyon. How are you doing? And she said, oh, my gosh, I didn't recognize you. I said, How could you? You were going so fast. I don't think you recognize anybody. In this stuff. And I said, what's your rush? And she says, oh, I'm hurrying just to pick up a few items because I'm leaving in the morning for a trip. And I said, really, where are you going? And she said, I'm going to Vegas, baby. And I said, oh, cool. I said, uh, with whom? And she said, with a new friend. And I said, really? I said, how many times did your husband take you to Las Vegas? Just curious. Your late husband. She said, oh, he would never take me there. He hated travel. We didn't go anywhere. He said, Eileen, is that a little bit of a silver lining to your life? And I'm sure she thought, shut up. 
<laughs> but I think she remembered that conversation. And, right. you know, sometimes it takes longer to get to that place. But, um, you know, her life obviously had become enriched. So back to your original question about what you need for your life. Clarity is key. What is it that you really, really want? What do you want to do for your life? Do you want to, you know, career-wise, family-wise, special interests, the whole category. So I help clients gain great clarity about that. And, and even circling around to your original question, what I did for myself, I became clear that I wanted another child. Um, I wanted a sibling for my son. I wanted another child. So that was part of my packaging. I wanted a husband. I wanted a child in that way. That was part of my bigger plan. Hmm. By the way, I married five, remarried five years later. And within the year, our beautiful daughter arrived. Oh, okay. So, so, so that, that plan happened. That I mean, plan happened. So that's number one. Uh, um, back to your original question of what I did to prepare for finding love again. Is that what you asked? Me? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. In terms of dating, I don't think that I experienced the, the fear and angst that a lot of people do. And I think it was because I had in my career done a lot of interviewing and, and I was perfectly comfortable with interviewing. I love hearing people's stories. It just that's just who I am. And so I, I think I heard long ago somebody refer to dating as you have to kind of reframe it. Don't think about dating as you did when you were a teenager. Things like, is he going to like me? Does my hair look good? Do I look good in this outfit? You know, just things like that. It's None of that is relevant. The only thing that really is relevant is do you like him? Right. And if, and if you don't like him, none of, the, none of the rest of it matters, right? Right. So once you can literally become the CEO of your own universe and think of dating as more of interviewing an intern, something along those lines. It takes all the pressure off you. And I share that with every client I work with, because believe me, every I would say without question, the clients that have hired me, and I've been doing this for decades, are freaked out about dating again after widowhood, even though they are important people career-wise and in their life in all other ways. But dating just puts them in that silly little teenage place that they yeah. need a paradigm shift with. I think it was different too, because I had uh, two like pre-pubescent young men that I was raising, my boys. And it wasn't like I'd never, you know, I had to think about them kind of. I, I added them to the equation of like, okay, I might like this guy or he might like me, but I need to factor my kids into this decision as well. Absolutely. Yeah. You did. yeah. And I'm sure your kids had some opinions about who you were dating, did they? No. I remember telling them like, okay, guys, I think I'm I'm thinking about dating, you know, and they were just like, please stop talking. We don't, yeah. we don't want to know anything about this. Yeah. I mean, and I didn't introduce, I'm remarried. And so I didn't introduce my husband in this life, Sean, to them for like six months. I mean, they knew I was dating him. I was dating somebody, but I, I it was like, I have to make really sure and be very clear about my intentions and like our intentions before I, we entered our children into the equation. So yeah, that was, that was something I had never had to do before. And you were really smart about that because, well, for so many reasons. And the most obvious reason is because what if all of a sudden you don't like the guy and you dump the guy you're dating and your kids think, wait a minute, mom, or quite the opposite. What if they're so resistant about you dating and then you're mixing a new guy in there. And then if it doesn't work, it just complicates it all. Yeah. 
Yeah. So, and luckily everything worked out really well, but you know, I had to, it wasn't like before in my twenties, like, Hey, you're cute, you know, at the bar or whatever, let's, let's uh, hang out. It's not like that. You know, there's, there's a little more seriousness to it. Absolutely. I was thinking about when I was in college and what my criteria was for dating, if they were cute and funny, um, that was about it. And, um, you know, it didn't matter about their goals and values and dreams and all of that kind of stuff. It was just, you're cute. You're funny. You're yeah. smart. Okay. Let's yeah, let's, let's give it a go. <laughs> let's see what happens. Yeah. And, and, and quite honestly, when I was in my, you know, later thirties and I was dating and I dated a lot of different people until I remarried, um, I, I was still kind of in a silly place. I still wasn't really, um, evaluating the greater picture because I was young and I didn't realize that you can't change men and uh, I guess I had been married at an easygoing kind of a guy and I just figured they all were like that that was the first step about getting clarity about what you want for your life step two it's all about loving yourself and becoming your own best friend Um, you know if you don't love yourself why should anybody else and that is a big process for many people and then people say, well, how do you become your best friend? Or, you know, I was just having this conversation with my husband last night when we were walking our dog. I said, what do, what do people do when they are raised in bad families? They did not win the parent um, lottery. And so they didn't get a lot of good feelings about themselves. And, and every day is a bit of a struggle to remind themselves of their self-worth. And I have client, I've had numerous clients over the several decades who are really successful and they're really driven hard to be successful. And I always ask those clients, what's driving you here? Especially when they are working themselves literally to death and they've received a tremendous amount of financial well-being, but somehow they're just pushing themselves. And I've had clients say to me, I'm just trying to um, impress my dad. One client in particular who said that, and I said, really? How often do you talk to your dad? He says, oh, he died a long time ago. But, but there it is. So the, the, the bigger questions become, how do you become your own best friend and love yourself no matter what? And there's ways to do that. I have a whole thing about how you can rewrite your childhood and become the parent to yourself that you never had. It really does work. And it's a process. And I say to clients, I know I'm going off on a little bit of a tangent here. I hope that's okay. No, no, that's okay. I, yeah. say, to, I say to clients, if every morning you have to get up and reboot the hard drive of your brain and remind yourself of all of the gifts that you possess and all of the beauty that's inside you. It's not a bad life. I mean, if you have to remind yourself and do that every single day, right. you can do and that. That's a really powerful <laughs> exercise too. That and reparenting yourself, or, you know, I think that's how you phrased it. Um, that's, that's something really powerful you can do because I think everybody's actually trying to do the best they can with, with the tools that they have. And sometimes it's not exactly what you probably needed. It's something that I work with a lot because, you know, I'm all about mirror work, being able to talk to yourself in the mirror and give yourself positive energy. And a lot of people say to me, I can't stand looking at myself in the mirror. I move past that mirror as fast as I can. And I said, well, let's, let's kind of change that around too. You know, baby steps, a little bit at a time. And uh, learn to become comfortable with that. And of course, the other part of loving yourself is forgiving yourself for absolutely everything. That's a heavy statement too, isn't it, Melissa? It is. It is. Because actually being a widow, like I have a lot of guilt around 
like maybe I could have done something to save Dave's life or, you know, maybe I could have, you know what I mean? So there was a lot of that that I had to kind of process because it just wasn't healthy. It was not healthy for me to keep having those thoughts circling in my mind. So a lot of forgiveness of, of myself and, and also parenting, like I was not the most fabulous solo parent of two (laughs) kids, you know, I was doing my best, but it's, it's such a stressful, lonely spot to be in. And so like, even now I do work around that, like just forgiving myself for, you know, not being the best parent at that particular certain times, you know, as I was grieving and kids were grieving and just kind of lost. So yeah, that's powerful too. How old were your boys when your husband died? They were 10 and 13. Yeah. How long ago, how long ago was that? Uh, about 10 years ago. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So they're 21 and almost 24. You got them there, kiddo. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. And, and they're self-supportive young men and yeah, I mean, we have a good, we have good relationships, but at the time, you know, I'm like those cringe worthy moments. It's like, oh, I can't believe I said that or did that or whatever. I hope I didn't scar them for life and just kind of forgiving myself for, for those moments. I think that's such a crucial thing, I, not just for widows, but really for everybody in life. You know, nobody sets out to say, how can I ruin these kids? That's not why we have kids to see how badly we can ruin them. Mm-hmm. And I think that we just, as you said, do the best darn job we can. And and we need to be forgiven for everything. And it starts with us. Believe me, I, I remember when my son was in his teenage years and my son has ADD, no filter again. Seems to run in my family tree, really. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so, uh, and I remember sometimes, you know, he would be swearing all the time and I just couldn't stand it anymore and I couldn't keep my cool anymore. I would just lose it. And every time I do that, you know, I, I would apologize quite rapidly after that. But believe me, I made as many mistakes, if not more, than any parent did. And really mistakes in life. Like my, when my husband, I, what you were saying about you could have done more to help your husband perhaps before he died. And I had a little story around that myself where I you know, made a mistake. And well, I'll just tell very briefly. When my husband um, died, he, we, he woke up about two days before he died. And he was, you know, he'd been fine up until then. He was walking around and doing everything. It wasn't like he was sick in bed or whatever. And then all of a sudden he woke up one morning and was somewhat um, disoriented. I called the doctor. Uh, The doctor said, let's bring him in the hospital. Maybe he needs electrolytes or, you know, he's dehydrated. So they did. And then the doctor told me the next day, your husband isn't going to make it. He, uh, he's not going to make it. He said the cancer has spread. And, And I said, how much time does he have? And he said, well, probably about a month. He said he's got a really good, strong heart. You know, he's a healthy guy, except for these cancer cells, so probably about a month. So I had my parents drive in the next day so they could take care of my baby. And then I could spend full time with my husband for that next month. My parents arrived. I hadn't slept in almost 48 hours. That night, I turned off my telephone and I said to my dad, here, here's the kid. Here's the directions. Don't bother waking me up. I need it. I need sleep. I went to bed that night. At five in the morning, our someone knocked on our door. I didn't hear it. I was in a dead man's sleep. My dad heard it, opened the door. It was my brother-in-law. He said, the hospital's been trying to reach you in your phone. I had shut my phone off. Mm-hmm. So I immediately called the hospital and I was just in a coma kind of place. I was, you know, I woke up. I didn't even know where, where I was practically. And I said, I understand you're trying to reach me. And I said, your husband died. We wanted to know where you want, what you want us to do with the body. That's how I found out that my husband died. Mm, so and sorry. I, 
So I, I mean, it was, I, I said, what? And she repeated it. And I said, well, what are my choices? I, like bring them home. I mean, I didn't know what, what she would meant by that. And I had never been with a, a dead body before. And she said, we just wanted to know, you know, we've been trying to reach you because he was failing. It took me a long time to forgive myself for turning off my phone. But then the bigger question one always needs to ask themselves is, how would you have known to do anything? I mean, you were with 48 hours of no sleep. And, and the hospital, the doctor said it would be a month. So you were just going based off that. It's like, I'm going to get some rest so I can gear up for the month. But I'll tell you, Melissa, that took a long time for me to figure out how to forgive myself. Yeah. And eventually, I, well, I'll tell you, I'll step in step three of my process. I, uh, I, step three is writing a letter to your late husband for greater peace. I did this intuitively at the one year mark of my husband's passing. I, I didn't really know why I was doing it, but I just wanted to kind of acknowledge this one year anniversary. And I wrote this letter and it just went on and on and on. I still have it in my office today. And I, I shared all of my feelings, my joy, my thankfulness for having him in my life, my anger about his cancer and all of it. I stayed with it until I was done. It wasn't really a letter. It was more like a manuscript. And, but it was a turning point for me. And I help clients do the same. And that's really with, with the grief recovery program, that's a national program. Part of that process is helping you to write that letter. And they suggest including things like thanking your spouse for everything he gave you, forgiving yourself and your husband for everything, apologizing for what needed was not left, uh, completely apologized for, and then saying goodbye. Not goodbye like you're never going to be in my world, but goodbye. You'll live in my heart forever. But I'm saying goodbye sort of symbolically. And uh, that can be very therapeutic. And somehow I did that just intuitively. And I help my clients do the same. Yeah, I can see. I'm like, as you're, I'm 10 years out, but as you're saying these things, I'm like, these are like things I should probably do now. I mean, I think I've done some of these intuitively in my mind, but I think actually to physically write down all that you're saying, forgiveness, I'm sorry. I mean, I wrote a book, but I didn't put all that stuff in there. Yeah, I can see where that would just, that could change lives. Absolutely. And it's never too late. When I became the training coordinator with Widowed Person Service, um, one lady I remember was in the program and she had been widowed for at least 15 years more than that. And she said, I've never shed a tear over my husband's death. I said, really? I said, did you hate his guts? Is that why? And she said, no, but I had children to raise and I didn't have time for any of that morning sort of stuff. And I remember saying to her, it's never too late, never too late. And there's a process you can follow to, uh, to, to mourn the loss of somebody. So you can move forward, fully move forward freely. So I'd invite you, Melissa, to write that letter. I'm, I, yeah, I think you've kind of sparked something in me. I, I think that's a, a necessary thing for me to do. Yeah. And powerful. A game changer for sure. Yeah, for sure. So those are the first three steps of my process for finding true love again. I've sort of forgotten what your original question was. Oh, how do I, pre- how did I prepare for finding love? I think was what you asked me. Uh, yeah. I mean, all of this is fascinating, <laughs> but like when you met Alan and it was like, okay, was it immediately like you're the one or like, how was that process with like dating him? It, it wasn't like that immediately. The first person that I fell in love with after my husband died was um, a gentleman from England. 
and I'll just share this story ever so briefly because as I mentioned, I was networking with every friend I'd ever met. And one of the closest friends to me were a couple in Lincoln that my late husband and I were good friends with. And they were really connected in Lincoln with everybody. So they were the perfect people to ask. So I thought she was an elected political official and he was a professor at the university. So, and they invited me and my baby to come over for dinner at their house regularly. And every time I would sit at their kitchen table, I'd say, so Linda, Mike, who do you know? And they say the same thing. It was like a broken record conversation. We don't know anybody. All the people we know are creeps. Every week, Linda, Mike, who do you know? I kept doing that over and over and over again. And then one day I'm over at the house for dinner. Linda and Mike, so who do you know they can with? And Linda said, well, wait a minute. Yesterday, Michael brought home this guy from uh, the university. He's a visiting professor for six months at the University of Nebraska. I said, and? He said, well, he's newly divorced. I said, and? I said, well, what's he like? And she said, oh, he's just adorable. He's British. And I said, Linda, how many dozens of times have I asked you who you know? And you always say nobody. And then here this dude is sitting at your kitchen table yesterday for lunch, and it didn't even occur to you to fix me up with them. I said, what's up with that? She said, I don't know. So I share that story with people because don't expect your friends to have your needs on their number one to-do list because they're living their lives and they're busy. She's probably concerned about serving them a nice lunch or who knows what. And I wasn't on her radar, even though I thought I should have been. Right. Long story short, she fixed me up with this guy and we dated the full six months that he was in the States. And after six months, he proposed to me and asked me, um, but said that I would, Jordan and I would have to go to the UK if we were to, you know, be with him. Well, I had never been to England before, but I was sort of um, up for that adventure. And I thought, what the heck? So we made arrangements and Jordan and I went to England. Um, we were going to stay for a month. And after about three days, all of a sudden that carefree, happy-go-lucky uh, Brit was not like that in at, at his home territory. He was reunited with his children and the ex-wife who had cheated on him and everything he left behind to come to the States. And, uh, well, that was a big eye-opening experience. It, I was devastated by that. Mm -hmm. It was the first love after my husband had died, and I didn't see that coming. So anyway, we continued the relationship for about a year and a half. I went home devastated, did not stay the full month. He apologized a few weeks later. Please let me come back to the States over Christmas break, and I'll make it up to you. I just freaked out. I just couldn't have imagined my life with this American outspoken woman and this baby, this kid, this ADD kid who's bouncing off the walls. It just didn't make sense to me, but I, I, I want to do over. So that's why the relationship lasted two years. It ultimately um, ended because I got smarter about what are my must-haves and what are my deal breakers. And he didn't fit that chart too well, even though I loved every word that came out of his British accented mouth, every word. Right. So, um, so I, that was sort of my litmus test when I dated everybody, sort of in between when I was seeing him and not seeing him and other people. And when I met Alan, I still was somewhat heartbroken about that guy in England, even though I knew in my head this was not the, the person for me. And Alan um, and I had talked on the phone a couple of weeks before we actually met in person. He was, Alan had been a radio DJ personality before he was in Carnegie. And he was wonderfully personable on the phone. But when I met him for our first date, all of a sudden he was pretty introverted. And, and I thought, oh my goodness, this is just too much work. And so after the first date, I said to him, um, 
Yeah, he said, I had a great time. I'm like, well, I'll give you in with you. And I said, no. It wasn't like I had men lined up that I could just turn down dates, but I just thought it just was too much work. He was just, I don't know what was going on there. So six weeks later, it was a big birthday for me. I decided I was all alone and I wasn't going to wallow in self-pity. So I threw myself an over-the-top birthday party and invited our friends and I hired a bartender and I hired a caterer and I did all this stuff. And that day of my birthday, I received this beautiful birthday card from Alan. I thought, how do you remember that? You know, I didn't remember we were talking about my birthday. And it was the sweetest card. I have that today too. And I said, so I thought, oh, I'll call him and invite him. I'm inviting some of my single lady friends. Maybe, you know, he's a pleasant enough guy. Nice looking. Maybe someone will like him. Call him up. I said, I've just thrown together this little party. It was anything but little. But anyway, and I said, I'd love to have you come. He didn't want to. He kept saying, no, 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 no. But I convinced him to come. He's the first to arrive. Um, he knows some of the people that are there just because we had some mutual friends in common. And the party's wrapping up and he's not leaving and everybody else is leaving. And then all of a sudden he leaves. It's in November in Nebraska. And I noticed that my house was really cold. I didn't notice it with all those people there and fireplace going, but I was cold. And he said, well, maybe your pilot light is out. I said, oh, do you know how to fix that? Come from a lot. I come from a long line of people who don't know how to fix anything and no patience about it either. So he says, yeah, do you have a long match? I did. He goes down in the furnace room and says, yeah, it's out. So he's trying to light it. He's trying to light it. He's trying to light it. He can't get it lit. And he just stays with it and stays with it and stays with it. I looked at him through new eyes and seven months later, we were married. Right. You're like, hmm, he's kind of hitting some marks here. I saw him with new eyes. And, uh, and I realized the reason that he didn't talk so much is he was an introverted personality. Right. And I just didn't see that in the couple weeks on the phone. But he's wired really well. And that's what I, I jumped at that point because I always say to my clients, don't look for fixer-uppers. Look for the real deal. Look for the guy who's really rich and all the ways that money can't buy, like kindness and consistency and dependability and all of those kinds of things. Yeah. And that's how Alan Kenyon is wired. Did you have actually a written kind of list? Yes, like I did. Yes, yes I, I did too. I think did that you? is so important. Did your new guy meet it? Did your husband meet that? Yeah, I, so I had, I'm, I'm trying to, I need to go find it. I do have it, but I think it's like three pages long and just handwritten. I just like one uh-huh. night, no judgment. I just wrote down whatever. Some of the stuff was really silly and some was really important. What I wanted in relationship and what I um, wanted in a partner. And when Sean and I started dating, I would come home from a date and I would look at my list and I'd start checking things off. And so after we dated for a few months, I'm like, I actually tallied up the percentage Love it. and, and he was like around the 80% mark, you know, of all these just weird, random things that I wrote down. And I'm like, it was almost like, I, I feel like I ordered, I ordered him up or else I was able to recognize him when he crossed my path because I had, I was very clear about what I wanted and, and how I wanted to feel in relationship. And so it was, yeah, it was a lot of clarity there. And I'd never done that before ever. So just intuitively kind of knew to do that. Yeah. It was actually a friend of mine had um, told me about like, she had done that prior when she had met her, her new partner and they're married now. And I'm like, Oh, I'll give that a try. Yeah. And it was just, and then I just put it away. I wrote it out one night, put it away. And a couple months later I met Sean. Yeah. 
Yeah. So and you make a good point about how you wanted to feel. I, I, in fact, I have really a list in front of me that I used. Um, it wasn't the original list, but it's all of the same stuff. I wanted to feel understood and valued and special, safe and loved, just like you mentioned in the bio. But also, I wanted to know that my partner had my back always and was my best cheerleader and really champion me and us. And my husband does that absolutely to a fault. In fact, whenever we're in a social setting, I mean, not every time, it's hard to remember social settings with COVID, but right. in our former life, um, if a conversation would come up, he'd always say, oh, Barbara is just like the best coach. And then he'd go, and I have to kind of, you know, kick him under the table because it's a little bit embarrassing. But I mean, he really, he totally believes that. He totally believes that. That's pretty cool having a life partner who champions you in that way. Right. It's like somebody to have your back. And that was on my list. This, this partner, this potential partner will have my back and I will have his. And um, the beauty, the beauty of having a list like you created and the list that I had is it saves you a lot of time and energy. As long as your list isn't too narrow, I would say cast a wider net. I remember one client said I could never date anybody bald. And I always invite people to revisit that. I mean, what's up with that? I mean, when you marry somebody, you don't have a guarantee that they're going to have hair forever. Anyway, and is right. that really what makes the man? So, yeah. but people do have little weird things that they like to exnay because of who knows even what. Well, I was one of the things on my list was like, must be a good speller because that is just a pet peeve of mine. Some of the texts that I would get from Sean, they weren't spelled, you know, with autocorrect and all that stuff. And I was like, I don't know about this. (laughs) It's on my list, but it's not super important. And he's, he's incredibly intelligent. He's a software engineer, you know, he's, but it was just like, this is not important. What, what's important is how he treats me and my kids and um, how I feel around him and how if I feel safe, I feel very safe and protected. And, and so the spelling, yeah, that's okay. <laughs> <laughs> that's what spell check is for anyway, right? Right? Yeah. <laughs> Our phones don't do that so well. No, but, well, Barbara, um, these interviews are never long enough. I know. Um, well, that's how it feels when you talk with like-minded people. I know. So we're going to have to kind of wrap things up. But I was wondering if you okay. had any, any final thoughts or anything you wanted to share I, with us? Well, I do actually. Um, as I mentioned, I had this seven step process and if people are truly interested in meeting somebody, somebody wonderful after they have gained that clarity um, of themselves and, and falling in love with themselves become the best version of who you are. And it's all a process, but it really does pay off in the end. A lot of times people, when they're interested in meeting somebody, they, they quit just before they reach the finish line. And, and, and that's true of anything in life. People, you know, they quit. And so I always say, stay the course, stay the course. Take a break if you need to, but stay the course. Don't take your eye off the ball because I truly believe that there is somebody wonderful out there for everybody. And not just somebody you have to settle for. Somebody wonderful, as long as you're willing to do the work and see it through. So I do want to make that point. The only other thing I might want to mention, uh, and I don't know if this is the place to, but uh, when Alan and I started our company together, he came up with a great idea. Well, lots of good ideas, but one of them, he said, we should send out a 30-second motivational tip every week via email and call it fire every week, like every Monday morning. Hmm. And I said, I love that idea. And I've always been big on quotes and little, little simple messages. So he created them and we would send them out every Monday morning. And we still do to this day. It's called Fire Up Your Week. 
And we received, initially it was just a few people like family members or whatever, friends, clients that would receive it, but they would forward it on to their friends and we you know, increased our list. And today in the year 2021, we have people in many time zones around the world that receive Fire Every Week every week. And it can be accessed if people are interested by going to our website, kenyancoaching.com. But also we receive so many wonderful emails from people. We still do. Every week we get an email from somebody or another, people we don't know. How did you know I needed to hear that today? It's because we write what we need to hear. And that was what, what the impetus for our book. We ended up writing a book with some of our best stuff and it's called Fire Up Your Life Now, 25 Secrets for Creating the Life You Really Want. And it's written in ADD terms so that each chapter is only three pages long and the person with the least attention span can get a good, powerful punch out of it. Mm, that's awesome. So that's available on the KenyanCoaching.com? It's not correct. And it's also on Amazon.com as well. And the other thing I did want to mention is that I do offer a free 30-minute breakthrough call. Um, no strings attached, no obligation to anybody who wants to uh, gain a little bit of clarity on what they really want for their life. And it's my pleasure to do those free calls. I love doing them. All right. And who couldn't use that? Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, Well, it's been a pleasure speaking with you, Barbara. I know that uh, widowsdatingcoach.com, I will go ahead and put that in the show notes, but that's where they folks can reach you. And I know you gave us a little teaser of your seven steps. I think we went through three of them. So Um, If you want to know more about Barbara, please contact her at widowsdatingcoach.com. And thank you, Filled with Gold Widow podcast listeners. If you'd like to hear more conversations like this, please subscribe, review, and share this podcast with others. Take care of yourself and see you next week. Thanks for joining us this week on the Filled with Gold Widow podcast. This show is made possible by our company, Filled with Gold Self-Care Subscription Boxes for Widows. It's a box specifically created to support you with self-care in mind. Each box is filled with self-care products and resources to encourage you to deeply care for yourself during this time when you are rebuilding your life. You can find out more about the Filled with Gold subscription box at filledwithgold.org. And if you want a free widow self-care support guide to help you on this journey, head on over to filledwithgold.org and subscribe to our email list to have it delivered right to your inbox. Be sure to tune in next week for our next episode. This is Melissa Pierce, and from my heart to yours, take care of yourself.